Thank you for listening to this message from Sovereign Grace Community Church in Denver, Colorado. We pray that you are encouraged and edified by it. You can find more information about Sovereign Grace Community Church by visiting our website at www.sgccdenver.org. If you would like to make a donation to our small ministry, you can do so using the donate button on our website or on the SGCC Denver sermon audio page. Again, thanks for listening, and may grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God our Father and of Jesus our Lord. Let's continue our worship in prayer. Father, what a delightful thing to be able to gather in your name, in the shared life that we have in Christ our Lord, to be able to celebrate and to give back to you in praise, acknowledgement of this mighty work, this glorious work of renewal, of transformation. And Father, it is easy for us, particularly as we have walked with you for many years, to take for granted what it is that we are part of, to, as it were, lose our first love, to be caught up in the busyness of life, even the things that press against us, and to find our hearts drawn down, our minds and spirits discouraged, to find ourselves wrestling to hold on to our faith. And we thank you that through the gifts of song and music and the blessing of your scriptures and the mutual ministry of your saints that we are given by you to have our countenance lifted up once again. To be given by you in your mercy to consider afresh and to be encouraged at this mighty, glorious work that we are a part of. And Father, may we never take it for granted. I think often of the Apostle Paul, who from the moment of his encounter with the resurrected, glorified Christ on the road to Damascus, he was never the same. Once the scales fell from his eyes, he lived out every moment of every day till he drew his last breath. With his gaze, his heart, his mind, his purpose fixed on Christ Jesus and the high calling that he had in him. This gospel of new creation in Christ never became a familiar, a common thing for Paul. It was never something that fell out of the front of his mind. But he lived all of his days focused on the goal of the prize, of the upward call of his God in Christ Jesus. And I pray that it would be so with us not as a matter of resentful duty, 
but as the great, greatest, most delightful enjoyment that we could imagine. What could be greater than knowing and being conformed to Christ Jesus our Lord? What could be greater than actually attaining to the full human existence for which you created us? To be at last fully, everlastingly, the children that you created us to be. In our uniqueness, in our individual gifts, as a part of this glorious plurality that is your body. Father, fill our hearts with joy. It's a delightful and a joyful thing to gather in the way that we have, with hearts raised in sincere worship and praise. And I pray that it would continue even in the hearing and consideration of your word now. May it encourage us and build us up in this most holy faith. That Christ would be honored in his church and through his church in the world. Amen. Well, we've begun our treatment of the exhortation of Paul in chapter 12 of Hebrews as he draws out this implication, this exhortation from chapter 11. And as I've said last time and have said several times, the brief rehearsal or the summary, if you will, of the Old Testament faithful was not just a history lesson for these Hebrew readers, but it was very much to encourage them in their own faith. They were to be encouraged as they looked back on their forefathers. And he wanted them uh, most narrowly to see that their connection with their Israelite forefathers was not their Jewish heritage. It was not their Israelite history. It was not the centrality of Israel's life under the law of Moses. But what bound them together with their forefathers was their common faith in the God who is faithful. The God of Israel who is faithful to what it is that he has purposed and revealed and promised. And so the fathers endured all sorts of opposition and affliction with full confidence that what God had promised, he would yet do. He would arise and he would accomplish all of his good purpose, all that they held on to. And in the same way, these Hebrew readers of this epistle, they were suffering for the same reason, suffering because of faith, but as those who had seen the promises fulfilled. The forefathers died in faith, not receiving what was promised. These Hebrew readers had come, had been privileged to be born in a time in which those promises had been realized. And therefore, their faith was grounded in the faithfulness of the God who they, in their own experience, had seen to be faithful in accomplishing what he had promised. Their fathers looked in faith and hope to the messianic day, the day that God had promised. And they held on to it. They held on to it tightly. But these Hebrews, their faith was holding on to the Messiah himself. But just as the faithfulness of the fathers brought suffering, so it is with these Hebrews. And this idea of suffering is very much at the heart of his exhortation. 
because their suffering was distracting them. Their suffering was disturbing their peace. It was creating an agitation and an unrest in their hearts. And the writer understood that the answer to this dilemma was not the removal of their suffering, but the rethinking of it. How they understood what it was that they were enduring, and specifically to rethink their own suffering in the light of Jesus' suffering. That's the context for his exhortation, and I'd like to read with you then we'll back up to verse 1 of chapter 12. We considered the first three verses uh, last time and I'd like for us to move uh, forward through the 10th verse today. So I will read those verses with you. If you have your Bible, you can turn to it. Even if you have it on a phone, I won't judge you for that. I'd rather you had a book, but that's okay. The writer says, therefore, since we have such a great cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also, as they did, lay aside every encumbrance, the sin which so easily tangles us up, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of the faith who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, setting aside, being able to disregard and put into its own context the shame, in order that now he has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Yes, consider him. And this idea of considering is to give very careful scrutiny, to consider in a, in a, in a careful, analytical way him who has endured such contradiction by sinners against himself, so that you may not grow weary and lose heart. You have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood in your struggle, your striving against sin. Not just theirs, but that which came against them. And you have forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons. As Nathan read from Proverbs 3, My son, do not regard lightly the Lord's discipline, nor faint when you are reproved by him. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines, and he scourges every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you endure. God is dealing with you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? But if you are without discipline, of which we have all become partakers, Then if you are without discipline, you are illegitimate children, not truly sons. Furthermore, we've had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much rather be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as seemed best to them. He, the heavenly father, disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness. A very dense context, a very dense set of instruction, and I want to try to unpack this a little bit today because I think this is so critically important, not just because of our present times and circumstances and all of the kind of societal and and political and economic and global woes that we're suffering, but because of ultimately this this whole dynamic of suffering as it plays into and is a part of the Christian life. 
So I've titled this very simply, Suffering and Discipline. And I want to open it up first by, again, as I said a minute ago, the writer in, in, in exhorting his readers to rethink the things they were suffering, the things, the trouble, the difficulty, the hardship, the tribulation they were enduring, he pressed them to a fresh consideration of Jesus himself. And the first and most obvious sense in which that they would look to him is that Jesus is the preeminent witness to faithfulness and the suffering that attends it. If the faithful forefathers were a cloud of witnesses who show what faithfulness looks like and what it is to endure in faithfulness, even in the context of suffering, how much more was that true of the preeminent man of faith, the preeminently faithful man? As the writer says, fix your eyes on Jesus. In what sense? What about him? He's the author and the perfecter of the faith. Not your personal faith, per se, but the faith. The faith, as Paul says in Galatians, that has now become the defining principle of the new, ultimate, consummate way of being human that is bound up in Jesus himself. A life of faithfulness with respect to the Father. He is the originator of that. He is the fountainhead of that. And he is ultimately the one who will see it perfected in a new human race founded in him as the last Adam. But that points then to the second issue, not just that Jesus is an example of a faithful man and the way that he dealt with the things that he suffered, but to view his suffering in terms of his identity and role as first fruits. And I chose that term because it's very much uh, a central New Testament idea. Jesus isn't just an example to be followed. He is, in a very real way, the leader. He is the one who goes ahead. And the, and the writer of Hebrews has made that very clear. Jesus is the beginning of God's new creation. He is the beginning of this renewal. In him, we see what it is to be a human being, and we become truly human in him. He is the one in whom faith and faithfulness are yes and amen. And so my point then initially is that our faith, our faithfulness, is really our entrance into and growth in ownership of his faith and faithfulness. Because our faithfulness is grounded in our participation in him. As sharers in his life, as sharers in his likeness, his faith and faithfulness become ours. If the faith and faithfulness that characterized him as true man, if that sort of faith and faithfulness marks him out in that way and we become truly human in him, if our humanity, our humanness is renewed in him, then that faith and faithfulness is what we're sharers in. Analogous to what you hear me say all the time, it's not Jesus raised from the dead, then we will be raised, but it's our share in his resurrection. Yes, in a two-stage way. But we participate in his resurrection just as we were put to death in his death. When one died, all died. So that those who live might no longer live the human life that they have known before, but might live to him, unto him, in him. 
we share in Christ as the new man, and so his faithfulness, his faith is also ours. And what does that mean? That means that the suffering that he endured is the suffering that we endure Because the faithfulness that incurs suffering, if we share in that faithfulness, we share in that suffering. And that's the point that Paul makes over and over again when he talks about this idea of if we suffer with him, we will be glorified with him. He's not saying, you know, go go out and make yourself suffer because then God will notice you and then God will be pleased with you. If you want to be glorified, then go out and make yourself suffer. That's not the point. The point is that the glorification of human beings sharing in Christ's glory comes because of their share in him. They are actually taken up in his life. And if they are taken up in his life, then his lot is theirs. Jesus said, if the world hates you, and his premise is the world will hate you, if it hates you, remember it hated me first. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But you are not of the world any longer because I have chosen you out of the world. That's why the world hates you. Remember what I said to you, a servant is not above his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. If they held to my teaching, they will hold to your teaching. They will treat you this way for my name's sake. They do not know the one who sent me. Jesus is saying that if we share in his life and if our lives are characterized by the same dynamic of faith and faithfulness, we will encounter in our own experience what he encountered. That's how Paul can say those who suffer with him will be glorified with him. Now, obviously, life in this cursed creation brings all kinds of suffering, and I'm trying to winnow this a little bit because we, we tend to think of, of suffering in a very general sort of way. And yes, life in this world brings all kinds of suffering, physical suffering, emotional suffering, relational suffering, financial suffering, whatever it happens to be. But the writer is focusing the point that he's making, because again, think of what is bringing the suffering to his readers. It's their faith and their faithfulness. He's focusing on that sort of suffering, the suffering that Jesus experienced because of his faithfulness, the suffering that comes to those who embody and express the life of God's new creation in the present old creation. Remember last time I said, this is the idea of tribulation, the pressing that comes against us, or if you will, this idea of contradiction. That's why I read this passage in that way. I think the King James and maybe a couple other versions put it that way. The NAS says, consider him who endured such hostility. But contradiction is a better idea. It is a hostility, but it's the hostility of contradiction. The contradiction between human beings who live according to the new creation in the Messiah and the world that operates according to the old creation. It's the idea of tribulation, the pressing, the pressing, pressing, pressing. Jesus said, in this world, you will have that sort of contradiction. You will experience it. You will have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I've overcome the world. 
And remember, I've mentioned before, when Paul comes back on his first missionary journey, he retraces his steps. He goes up into Asia Minor and he comes back through the same towns in which he'd proclaimed the gospel. And his encouragement to these communities of believers who maybe had only been in place for a matter of months, probably no more than, than a couple of years and probably less than that. His encouragement to them, the way he's strengthening them as new believers who are beginning to experience this contradiction is by telling them that it's through much tribulation that we inherit the kingdom of God. He encourages them by saying, much tribulation is appointed for you. And the idea, again, of tribulation is this contradiction. If you are now sharers in the life and likeness of Christ in the world, you are going to experience what he did. You are going to experience what he did. The suffering of contradiction. Now, the Old Testament faithful suffered because of their faith, but not as those who were part of the new creation, but who bound themselves to the promise of it and walked with God in view of it. They met the same contradiction by those who had no sense of it. But obviously, Jesus experienced that contradiction to the fullest, and that's what the writer says. Consider him who endured the max, if you will, or this great contradiction by sinners against himself. Jesus experienced to the uttermost this sort of contradiction because he was the first man, the first human being to really live as a new sort of man. Jesus' entire life from his birth was the contradicting in his own faithfulness of the Adamic nature that he was born into. At every point, he was contradicting his own nature as a son of Adam. And in that way, putting to death constantly this fallen Adamic way of being human and manifesting a new sort of humanness that God actually ordained for his human creature. And that brought nothing but hardship and difficulty into his life. Even issues of emotional anguish, spiritual anguish, the burden of love in a world that is set against the truth. And in the same way, Jesus' people, those who share in his life and likeness, experience the same sort and degree of suffering to the extent that they express that life in the world. That's kind of the fundamental point of how they're to rethink their suffering in the light of Jesus himself. But that living union then with him is the connection between his faith and suffering and the faith and suffering of those who are his brethren. And the writer wants these Hebrew readers to draw encouragement and strength for their ordeal of faith by considering Jesus in that way. Not simply that, gee, you haven't suffered as much as he did, so suck it up. It's easy to read it that way if you don't get his point. He says, consider him who suffered so much. You haven't resisted to the point of shedding your blood, so suck it up. It was far worse for him than for you. And he bore through it, so you need to bear through it. But that's not really what he's saying. He's saying that this ultimate contradiction that Jesus bore in himself was not just more than what you've endured, but it was for your sake. 
He suffered in this way to the uttermost, not just because he was the guy that lived the the kind of human life that God intended, but that he lived as a faithful son for the sake of many sons. Look back at chapter 2. It's been a while, but hopefully you remember some of this. He says, we, and again, quoting from Psalm 8, Back in verse 5, but picking it up in verse 8, he says, in subjecting all things to him, and Psalm 8 is a tribute to the glory of man. When I consider the heavens the work of your hands, what is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him a little lower than the angels, but crowned him with glory and honor. You set him over the works of your hands. The glory of man in God's purpose. And he's now tying that to Jesus himself. Verse 8, in subjecting all things to him, he left nothing that is not subject to him. But now we do not yet man. We do not yet see all things subjected to man. We don't see what the psalm is saying because of this fallen world. He says, but what we do see is him, Jesus, who was made for a little while lower than the angels, crowned with glory and honor because of, by virtue of the suffering of death, that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone, for it was fitting for him, for whom are all things and through whom are all things, in bringing many sons to glory to perfect the author of their salvation through sufferings. In other words, what Psalm 8 is celebrating is to be realized for God's human creature through the suffering of the Son. The suffering of the Son is the way in which many sons are brought to glory. So behind the scenes, in a sense, is this idea of sonship. It's not just just that Jesus suffered more than you have. It's that he suffered to the uttermost for the sake of the Father gathering in and perfecting sons. He was a faithful son for the sake of many sons. So my point is this, this. It's this reality of sonship, one's new life in the Son as a son, that's the fundamental issue in fixing our eyes on Jesus. Christians are to view their ordeal of faith, their race, if you will, as the life of sonship. We're to view our ordeal of faith and the suffering that attends it as the life of sonship. The life that all of God's children experience as they walk the path pioneered by the preeminent son. The leader and the consummator of the faith. The faithful way of doing human existence that he himself led out and that he imparts to all who share in them. In him, rather. So sonship is at the very center of this idea. And it's in this context of sonship now that he begins to talk about this idea of discipline. That's the transition here. Looking to the son who through his suffering has been perfected unto the perfecting of many sons. But now discipline is worked into that idea. So the life of sonship is the life of faithfulness. 
And that life of faithfulness necessarily incurs the suffering of contradiction. When Paul says all who will live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, he's saying that very thing. If to the extent that we are Christ in the world, to use Paul's expression, we bear his fragrance, we will meet the same contradiction he did. That's what faithfulness is. That's the life of sonship that brings about this opposition. But the writer of Hebrews is saying, he's telling his readers, your suffering is because of your faithfulness. But it's not arbitrary. It's not meaningless. It's not just inevitable. It's not just the way it is in a, in a fallen, broken world. Suck it up. It's not your suffering and God doesn't care. God's detached. God doesn't notice. He's, detra- he's distracted with other things. Or he's just not capable of fixing it. It's just the way it is, suffering in the world. This isn't just an inevitable circumstance. What the writer is getting at is that you need to rethink your suffering in the light of Jesus' suffering and the goal of his suffering as ultimately about this issue of sonship, the gathering in of many children. So that the suffering is purposeful, it's directed by the Father. If you will, it is the discipline of his children. And again, he uses Proverbs uh, 3 to make the point. And interestingly, Proverbs 3 has nothing to do with God doing anything. It's Solomon's instruction to his sons. If you read that from 1 through 7 in the beginning of Proverbs, it's all Solomon's instruction to his sons. Sometimes one particular son. Well, how can he say this is God's exhortation to you as sons? Because the heart of Solomon's exhortation to his own sons is that God disciplines his children. And he says to his readers, what you are enduring is God's discipline. Therefore, it's God's word to you as sons. And I don't want to belabor that, but that's the connection that he's making there. It's the discipline of God's children. Well, the place to start is really with this idea of the nature of discipline. If we're going to understand our suffering, our hardship, this contradiction that meets us as sharers in the life and likeness of Christ, if we're to understand that as discipline, then it's important to understand what discipline really is. The writer recognizes that the things that his readers were suffering had caused them to lose sight of the real meaning, the significance of their suffering. And that's the way it tends to work. He doesn't say you don't understand. He says you've forgotten. You've forgotten. It's not that their memory has failed them. It's that their affliction, their difficulty, the things pressing against them were distracting them and obscuring what they knew to be true. And it works that way. We get distracted and we forget. We lose sight. We lose track. They were becoming discouraged and even resentful of their difficulties, no longer able to perceive their suffering as in any way related to their father's loving care. 
And obviously reconciling difficulty, suffering, hardship, injustice with a loving God is not an easy thing. This is the problem of theodicy, right? God and the existence of evil. And people say, well, if God is, God can either be good or he can be sovereign. He can't be both. Because if God is good and there's evil, then he can't do anything about it. If God is sovereign, then he can't be good because he could change things and he doesn't. He's either good or he's sovereign because of this thing called evil in the world in all of its manifold forms, including suffering. And it's especially difficult to reconcile a loving God with suffering when it's close to home. We can do it theoretically at a distance, but when it's close to home, it gets a lot harder, doesn't it? It's the difference that you see with C.S. Lewis when he treats the problem of evil clinically, theologically, and when he treats the problem of suffering in the context of the loss of his wife. You read those two treatments, his treatment theologically of the problem of evil, and then you read his writings, which I think were drawn from his own uh, journals when his wife Joy died, and they're very different. Very different. It becomes very hard to deal with suffering when it's close to home. And the problem is made worse by the way that we naturally think, the way we naturally perceive. Our natural sense tells us that loving concern always seeks to make life easier. If we love someone, we don't want it to be hard for them. I've said many times, you know, in in parenting, our instinct is to want our kids to go through life on a silk pillow. We don't want it to be hard. We don't want them to suffer. We don't want it to be difficult because we love them. But the very worst thing for them is to sail through life on a silk pillow. Because we can all look at our own life and recognize that we have learned sonship through the things we've suffered. We can look at our own growth and recognize how the difficulties of life have been instrumental in that growth and that progress. We think that loving concern will always seek to make life easier. God, if you love me, you'll take away what hurts. God, if you love me, you'll fix this problem. God, if you love me, you'll smooth the path for me. And even this idea of consigning discipline to a negative connotation of punishment, and that's very much a kind of contemporary thing that we do. Discipline is viewed as, again, uh, giving someone his due for what he's done wrong. Parents discipline their kids in the sense that they punish them when they've done something they shouldn't do. But biblically and more fundamentally, the idea of discipline is rearing, training, instruction. It's not negative at all. Now, it may have negative expressions in the part of child rearing, which is an entirely positive thing. It can have moments of the spanking or the you know, grounding or whatever it happens to be. 
But the basic idea of discipline is instruction and training that is oriented towards, directed towards, working towards a specific goal. It's not just keeping my kids safe and fed and dressed until they turn 18 so I can kick them out the door and now it's your problem, it's your life. Fathers have historically disciplined their children. If you look back historically, the way people raised their kids, certainly in the ancient world, the context in which the writer is writing here, fathers historically took the lead in this thing of discipline, and they disciplined their children for the sake of the role and responsibility that that child would have in the family's future, in the family's fortune. Marriage was never about love or romance. It was about economics. It was about politics. Daughters didn't get to marry who they wanted. The father picked who they would marry, often while they were little tiny children, because they were looking to the family's well-being going forward. And kids were raised to understand that they didn't have a life of their own, so to speak. Their life was to serve the good of the family. Whether it was a pauper or a king, all labored to prepare their sons and daughters for the life appointed for them. That's how discipline worked. It was instruction and training that would prepare the kids for the life that was determined for them by the father. And that's not a very familiar idea today where we have a kind of subjective, emotional, child-oriented approach to child-rearing. And discipline is viewed as a negative consequence for unacceptable behavior. The ancient world, and still many places today, parenting wasn't concerned with the child's interests or desires. That wasn't on the radar. He didn't say, but daddy, I love this person. I don't care. That was not even taken into consideration. Daddy, I want to you know, be a this or be a that. Well, let me pay for your college to go do that. It wasn't that way. Parenting focused on the child's future role as determined by the father. This is where that idea of a pedagogue comes in. And it still happens sometimes, people that have money or royalty. But in the ancient world, parents that could afford it often would give over their young children, particularly their sons, to a pedagogue. That child would be removed from the home and would be raised by one or more pedagogues whose role it was. They were hired by the father, and their role was to prepare this child for the future marked out for him. That's how Paul speaks in Galatians 4 when he uses that idea of of how the old covenant, the law of Moses, how it functioned in God's preparatory work that has now reached its fullness in the Messiah. 
He says the law, the, 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 the mosaic economy and, and the way that it governed and led Israel, it functioned as a pedagogue, preparing, instructing, leading, developing, so that when the fullness of the time would come, the child would be prepared, the child who was no different than a slave would be prepared to assume his inheritance. Go back and read Galatians 4. That's what a pedagogue was. Someone hired by the father to prepare the child for the ultimate role that that child would play determined by the father. Why do I keep belaboring this? Because this is critical to the idea of God's discipline. And it applied in the ancient world to daughters as well as men. He focuses on sons here because there was a unique dynamic between fathers and their male offspring. Men viewed their sons as an extension of themselves. Even the idea of primogeniture was the firstborn, right? But the idea is that the father's own Life, his own significance was carried forward through his sons. The importance of bloodline, the fact that kings were so concerned to make sure that this child was really his and not somebody that the queen had had an affair with or whatever. His blood, his line. His significance carried forward to the next generation. So sons were the particular focus of fatherly discipline. Daughters were raised as well. They were taught all the skills that they would need to fulfill their role, which was a wifely, childbearing role. They didn't go get a job as accountants or whatever. It was a wifely, childbearing role. But they were married off into a family that would benefit the family that they were married from, and usually both families. It was an arranged thing. It was an economic, political decision. But sons were the particular focus of fatherly discipline, and in practice, what the writer is getting at or pointing to, among other things here, is that it was that very discipline, that directed, intentional goal-oriented child-rearing that attested that a man regarded this particular child as his true son. The fact that a man would invest that discipline, that training, that instruction, that nurturing in this particular son, that he would carry his, you know, the significance of the family and, and its wealth and it, whatever into the next generation showed that that man regarded that one as his son, his true son. And that's what the writer says here. He says, what man, what son, what true son is there whom a father doesn't discipline? If you are without discipline, of which we've all become partakers, you are illegitimate children. You're really not even sons. The way you can tell a true son is the father's discipline. Because the father sees in him the, leg, the, the, the future of the family. He, he has a goal orientation. That shows us why discipline is a necessary thing. 
It presupposes a purpose and a predetermined outcome. In other words, the child's good as determined by the father. And the fact that there is a predetermined outcome, which the father himself has decided, he determines that good that is that outcome, that shows the necessity of this discipline that is the process of getting the child to that outcome. Discipline is the father's course of action that leads to the outcome that he has determined, the father. But the writer says in the human realm, that's subject to human limitation. A father will discipline, train, nurture, um, press his child towards the goal that the father has appointed for him, but he does it with limitations, of insight, of motive, of ability, of resource. God also, he says, seeks the good of his children in this thing called discipline. But with that goodness, with that intent, with that discipline, not limited in every way. It's the same in the sense that God disciplines his children in view of his own determination for them, the future he's ordained for them, and their significance in the family, the family of the father. But his discipline isn't limited by those shortfalls of insight or or wrong motive or misguided motive or lack of ability or lack of resource. The Heavenly Father views his children and the goal he has for them and all of the means of their discipline through his own wisdom and his intent for them in relation to this new creation and their place and role in it. The writer says of God's discipline has its goal in them sharing in his holiness. And the idea is not that they would be morally perfect as God is morally perfect. And I'm not saying that's whole cloth wrong, but that's not the point that he's making. Sharing in God's holiness means being set apart utterly to the mind and the work and the the will of God as God himself is committed to his own agenda, if you will. This, This goal of God is their full conformity to his own life and likeness and purpose and its accomplishment, which is achieved through their conformity to the Messiah the first fruits of God's new creation, the beginning of the new human race, his new Adam. So in closing then, when we understand these things in this way and the goal that God has, yes, determined by the Father, yes, involving their place in the family and the future of the the community that is under the patriarch, it shows us then why it is that we suffer as sons. If it's really about this issue of sonship and the realization of our place as sons in the father's family, we understand why we suffer and how that's a crucial aspect of God's discipline. Suffering isn't the totality of God's discipline, but it's a crucial aspect of it. The goal that God has is the perfection of our sonship, that we would become sons in the Son. 
fully conformed to him. And that means the renewing and perfecting of our minds, the perfecting of our intimacy with God, and those, this, this perfecting of our sonship, our conformity to Christ, it implicates the way we perceive things, the way we understand things, the conforming of our persons to the person of God, which means the conforming of our persons to Jesus, who is the perfect communion intimacy of God and man. It pertains to our devotion. It pertains to our dependence. And all of those things are nurtured through suffering. If you think about what the fall did, if you think about our natural humanness, it establishes us in a place of perceived autonomy and independence in which there's me and there's not me. And yes, God is out there. But even though we won't say it this way in our practical lives, this God who is out there and is powerful and is sovereign, I I bring him alongside according to my agenda. If he's good, he makes my life easier. He must surely want what I want. And so God becomes the not-me resource to serve the me that I perceive and that I understand. It ought to look this way, it ought to be that. We swim in a sea of ourselves with everything else orbiting around us. And everything that's not me is viewed through the lens of my own interests, my own sense of what's good, proper, needful, appropriate, desirable, undesirable. And God comes into that sphere also according to that same criteria. That's what the fall has done. It has isolated us within a broken self. And that's the antithesis of sonship. Because a son is of the father. As Jesus said, when you see me, you see the father. We say, when you see me, you see me. For good or for ill. But true sonship is that when you see the son, you see the father. So there's this there's this general thing of alienation or isolation within our broken selves. And through the things that we suffer, it, it exposes and it forces us to have to confront our natural, intrinsic, even unconscious way of perceiving and living out our lives as human beings. When everything goes the way that we want, there's no need for faith. We live by faith or we live by sight. And we're always trying to script God into our narrative. Always. But when suffering comes, and specifically the the dynamic of suffering through faithfulness, God, I'm trusting you. God, I'm following you. God, I'm seeking to be conformed to the likeness of your son. And all this is coming against me. That dynamic, again, exposes the fact that we are not the faithful people that we believe. And in fact, we are still characterized by natural ways of perceiving and living our lives as humans. So in a sentence, suffering in all of its various forms, and it doesn't mean, you know, just disease or imprisonment or whatever. It means the struggles of mind, of heart, the struggles of contradiction in all of the ways in which that occurs. Suffering exposes the fallacy of life as sons of Adam. Life doesn't work in that way. 
we're always coming against things that aren't what they ought to be. And so suffering points us to another way of being human. This is why Jesus endured the discipline of suffering. He didn't suffer because he was a sinner. The discipline of the Father was not punishing him because he did something wrong. His life was the discipline of sons, and it was a life characterized by suffering. The great portrait of him, the the messianic figure in Isaiah, is a man of sorrows well acquainted with grief, a suffering servant, a suffering man, a man who doesn't fit into the world, a man that the world can't understand, that the world opposes, that the world presses back against. His suffering wasn't because he was a sinner being disciplined and corrected in his bad behavior. He suffered because he was a son of Adam who also needed to learn as a human being the true human existence of sonship. He had to learn what it is to be a son through the things he suffered. We often lose sight of the fact that Jesus was fully exhaustively human as we are and tempted in every way as we are without sin, but the writer of Hebrews makes much of that. He didn't float above the fray. He was born as a baby. He had to be potty trained. He had to learn how to talk. He had to learn how to walk. He lived a fully human life, but at every point consistent with his maturity, he was pushing back against this Adamic fallen way of doing human life. But he had to grow, he had to learn, and through the things that he encountered, the things that pushed back against him, the things that he suffered, he grew in his understanding of himself, of his father, of his mission, why he came into the world. He grew in his communion with his father, wrestling with his father, prayer, devotion. He grew in his utter dependence on his father for all things. We say, well, he was God. He didn't need his father. No, he lived a perfectly, fully dependent, needy human life, drawing the resource of his father in all things. All of that growth was nurtured through the things that he suffered. He, He became truly a fully human son, perfectly, exhaustively faithful in all things through the dynamics of the life that he lived. And as it was with him, so it is with all sons of the Father. All who are true sons must walk that same path of maturation that has suffering at its center. Again, because of the nature and the goal of our sonship. It's not because we're sinners. It's not because God needs to teach us a lesson. It's not because, you know, we need to be corrected because we did this wrong. And I'm not saying God never does that. But the heart of the issue of discipline is God moving along this path of growth in sonship that we would become fully consummately sons of the Father, fully conformed to his nature, his likeness, perfect intimacy, perfect devotion, perfect communion, so that we can say with Jesus, when you see me, you see the Father. That was the human life, the path that Jesus walked. That's the path that we have to walk. Our natural minds want to tell us that if we will be faithful as God's children, then it will go well for us. If we will be faithful, then we won't suffer. And it's not just us. That's the way people think. 
Remember when they came to Jesus in, in Luke, I think chapter 13, and they, they were telling him about the Galileans that Pilate mixed their blood with their sacrifices? And Jesus knows what they're getting at, and he says, do you think those Galileans were greater sinners than you because they suffered in that way? And remember the beginning of John 9, the man, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? You see, the implication is that the faithful ones don't suffer. If we will be faithful, it will go well. If we will be faithful, it will go easily. And the truth is that when we understand faithfulness in this way as the manifesting of the life and likeness of Christ, the new creational way of being human in a world that doesn't do humanness that way, the truth is faithfulness heightens our suffering. It introduces a whole new dimension of suffering that people outside of Christ don't know. They can't experience it. Because we're the salmon that's swimming against the current. They're going with the flow. I'm not saying people, all people don't suffer. They do, because it's a broken world. Health, finances, relationships, all of those things. But the specific issue of suffering is the suffering of sons that comes through faithfulness. And the writer is saying, when these things come at you, don't say, how do I get rid of it? But to recognize that this is the authenticating goodness of the Father to you. When you suffer, as Peter says, not as a malefactor, but as a Christian, rejoice. This is God's grace and goodness to you. If we don't suffer the suffering of contradiction, then we are not living as sons of the Father. If we don't know the suffering of contradiction, we are not living as sons of the Father. All who will live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer. But when we understand it rightly, then we embrace it as the Father's loving and wise nurture instruction that serves the progress and the perfection of our sonship. And I am done. I just want to read 2 Thessalonians one with you. If you know the setting of the Thessalonians, uh, from the very moment that Paul brought the gospel to them and people began to embrace it, the fire started coming against him. Paul was driven from Thessalonica because of the intensity of the persecution. And the Jews at Thessalonica followed him down to Berea and tried to assault him down there. So from the very beginning, the Thessalonians were knowing that uh, we're experiencing this contradiction that comes to faithfulness. And listen to how Paul commends them. And then I am done. Paul and Silvanus Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians in God our Father and in the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you, peace from God the Father, the Lord Jesus, and the Lord Jesus Christ. We ought always, it's right and proper that we would always give thanks to God for you, brethren. It's fitting because your faith is greatly enlarged. And the love you have for one another, it grows ever greater. And so we ourselves speak proudly of you among the churches of God for your perseverance and faith in the midst of all of your persecutions and the afflictions which you endure. But that dynamic 
of faith and affliction, the opposition, the contradiction that comes to faith is plain indication of God's righteous judgment concerning you, that he has considered you worthy of the kingdom, his kingdom, the kingdom of God, for which indeed you are suffering. Your suffering is in view of that, unto that, because of that. That purpose and goal that God has for you. For after all, it is only right for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you. Not that it's necessarily going to happen now. And to give relief to you who are afflicted and to us as well, when the Lord Jesus shall be revealed with heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire. Dealing out at that time retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not adhere, own, embrace, live out the gospel of new creation in our Lord Jesus. And these will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord, away from the glory of his power, when he comes to be glorified in his saints on that great day, and to be marveled at among all who have believed. For our testimony to you was believed by you, and it's evident. To this end also we pray for you always that our God may count you worthy of your calling. May he fulfill every desire for goodness and the work of faith with power. Not take away your difficulties in order that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and Messiah Jesus the Lord. That's the way we should be thinking. That's the way we should be praying. That's the way we should be understanding our suffering. Father, these are not easy things often to get our heads around. And as I said, when we struggle, when suffering comes very close to home, when difficulty, pain, loss, injustice, when it comes close to home, it's easy for us. It's easy for us to lose sight of faithfulness, to lose sight of sonship, to lose sight of the fact that for all the injustice, for all the wrongfulness, for all of the the wickedness of this world, in your hand, it is your fatherly, wise, loving nurture of your children. The path that Jesus walked is the path that we walk because our lives are hidden in you, in him. How can we think, why would we want to not walk the path that he walked? If his life, the life of hardship, difficulty, striving, struggle, contradiction, if that was the path of sonship, if that was the path of glory, how could it be otherwise for us? And so, Father, I pray that you would give us new and clear-seeing eyes. We all suffer, and we suffer in many ways, often because of our own foolishness or stupidity. But the suffering that comes to us because of faith, may we not resent it as, where is our God? Why isn't he helping me? Why is he leaving me in this place? Does he really care? Does he notice? But we would receive and understand that in all of these things, you are treating us as children, as true sons, even as you treated the unique son in that way. 
the one who the world looked at and said, this, can't, this one can't be loved by the Father. He thinks that he's the Son of God, really? But the one who was the monogonese, the uniquely begotten, the uniquely infinitely beloved of the Father, lived a very difficult life. And in all that, he understood and embraced and thrived through the loving kindness of the things he suffered. May it be so with us. And may we encourage one another in that way. When the flames are hot and the pressure is hard and we don't know if we can endure, I pray that we would come alongside one another, as Paul did the Thessalonians, and encourage one another in that sort of a way. God is loving you as his children. Embrace his hand. This is the way in which you will share in the fullness of the inheritance that belongs to Christ himself. Help us in these things that Christ would truly be exalted in us through faith. Amen.